Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Hi, this is Carl Amari, and welcome to episode 65 of Radio Rarities, the weekly podcast series that examines unique episodes from the golden age of radio. My co-host is the vivacious Lisa Wolf. This time we have an audition of a network experimental series. It's the ABC Radio Workshop from the fall of 1950. Even as television was becoming the preferred means of home entertainment in the early 1950s, some executives in the industry were still willing to put resources into radio. At that time, ABC was producing such popular dramatic radio series as Mr. President and the Fat Man. These are established programs with experienced stars such as Edward Arnold and J. Scott Smart. In choosing to create the ABC Radio Workshop, the ABC Network was continuing a tradition in the medium whereby program directors were given liberty to produce unusual plays and formats. And also introduce new talent to the airwaves. The best-known workshop concept was originated by CBS in the late 1920s and early 1930s with programs such as the CBS Experimental Laboratory. Which later evolved into the Columbia Workshop. It was on this series that Norman Corwin was able to exhibit his creativity making him radio's premier dramatist. In addition to the prestigious workshops broadcast by major networks, there were numerous such series produced by colleges and universities and were aired on local and often non-commercial radio stations. An excellent example is the University of Wisconsin, which broadcast for several years on WHA in the state's capital, Madison. Students who were involved in these productions were working toward their academic degrees. With many finding positions at radio stations after graduation. Another source for workshops were the various theaters that were in the vicinity of a radio station. There were literally hundreds of such groups which popped up during the 1930s as local stations collaborated with stage troops. In preparing the audition for their radio workshop in 1950, ABC staff at station KECA in Hollywood called its cast from various community theaters. A long list of cast members who participated in the audition recording we're about to hear is acknowledged during the closing announcements. And we'll comment on a few of these actors after the show. The script selected for the audition continued to be a hot topic in the news. High-profile, unsolved murders usually are, Carl. And this one was no exception, Lisa. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this case. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy the audition episode of the ABC Radio Workshop with the Black Dahlia Murder Case. Recorded at the ABC Studios in Hollywood, September 26, 1950. From Hollywood, the ABC Radio Workshop. Good evening. 
Once again, through the facilities of the American Broadcasting Company, the ABC Radio Workshop presents another dramatic production from Studio Y. Adventure, comedy, romance, drama, mystery. These are yours from Studio Y. Tonight, mystery. As the ABC Radio Workshop brings you a dramatized case from the files of the Los Angeles Police Department. Listen closely, then, as we recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. We open the files on one of this nation's most famous unsolved murders. It's homicide file number DR-295771 of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. It is approximately 6.45 a.m. The morning of Wednesday, January 15, 1947, in the southwest section of Los Angeles, in the houseless 3900 block on South Norton Avenue, a vacant, weed-overgrown lot is barely visible in the quiet darkness just before dawn. Then an old battered sedan speeds south on Norton Avenue and suddenly swings sharply into the curb opposite that vacant lot. remains at that location for approximately three minutes. During that time, the driver makes two hasty trips across the paved sidewalk between the car and the vacant lot. Then, when the task is completed, the driver re-enters the car. And speeds away. It is now approximately 11 o'clock on Wednesday morning, January 15, 1947. Mrs. Betty Bersinger of 3705 South Norton Avenue is walking on the west side of Norton in the 3900 block. She is walking toward Lemaitre Park with her three-year-old daughter, Anne. Are we going to the park today, Mommy? Yes, we are, dear. I like to go to the park. We have lots of fun there, don't we, Mommy? I should say we do, honey. We always have lots of fun when... <gasps> What's the matter, Mommy? Why did we stop? Oh, it's nothing, Anne, nothing. Here... Here, take my hand. What's the matter, Mommy? What's wrong? Nothing, dear. Anne, and you see that house down at the next block? Let's see how fast we can get there. Come on, dear. Let's see how fast we can get there. But, but what's the matter, Mommy? What's wrong? It is now 11.05 on the morning of Wednesday, January 15th, 1947. A monitor on the police complaint switchboard in the communications division of the Los Angeles Police Department answers an incoming call. Police Department, complaint division. Hello. I want to report a body. Yes, body, ma'am? Yes, a, a nude body. It's, it's lying there just off the sidewalk in the vacant lot. Where is the lot, ma'am? It's in the, the 3900 block on South Norton, Norton Avenue, on the west side of the street. I saw it lying there just a few minutes ago. I, All right, I... ma'am. Thank you. We'll have somebody out there right away. 
It is now 11.07. Radio car 302, manned by officers F.S. Perkins and W.E. Fitzgerald of the University Division, is cruising in the southwestern section of Los Angeles. Pretty quiet this morning, Fitz. That's a fact. But it's been that way out here for a while. I was just thinking the other night that... Crank it up, Fitz. Yeah. Code 2. A 390 down on the west side of Norton. 3900 block. Car 302. Acknowledge. Car 302. Acknowledge. 302. Got it. In response to the Code 2 broadcast, the radio car proceeds immediately to the 3900 block on Norton Avenue and pulls over to the curb on the west side of the street. Officers Perkins and Fitzgerald get out and walk over to the edge of the sidewalk. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. The nude body of a young woman is lying face up in the weeds, a few inches from the sidewalk. Her face and forehead have been brutally slashed and beaten. The body itself horribly mutilated. It has been cut completely in two. Better notify university detectives. Homicide's going to have a job on its hands. The officers report their findings to the University Police Division, and Detectives Jesse W. Haskins and S.J. Lambert arrive on the scene. Captain Jack Donahoe of Central Homicide is notified and assigns Detective Sergeants Harry Hansen and Finnis Brown to the investigation. Chemist Ray Pinker and police photographer Lorson arrive, as does Lieutenant Lee Jones of the Scientific Investigation Unit of the Detective Bureau. What is to prove to be one of the greatest manhunts in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department is underway. Early efforts to identify the victim of the murder prove unsuccessful, and at 7.25 o'clock on the night of January 15, 1947, an all-points broadcast is put out. Attention, all police officers, all cars and divisions. Wanted, identification of this person found murdered this a.m. Description follows. Female, American, age indeterminate but young. Height, five foot six. Weight, 118 pounds. All fingernails bitten too quick. Black hair with indications of having been hennaed recently. Eyes, grayish green. Small nose up-tilted slightly. Extremely high forehead and hairline. No earlobes. Ears not pierced. Vaccination mark on left side. Several nodes on left hairline. Meanwhile, Dr. Frederick D. Newbar, chief autopsy surgeon of the coroner's office, makes a post-mortem examination that lasted three full hours. Then he reports... The immediate cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. From his other findings, the police offer this theory. There were rope marks around her neck, wrists, and ankles. These, along with the severe mutilations of the body, indicate the victim was probably tied and sadistically tortured before her death. The absence of any large amounts of blood at the spot where the body was found and uh, the fact that the body had been washed, possibly uh, surgically scrubbed, before it was dumped on the lot, indicates that the actual murder took place elsewhere. Fingerprints are taken at the morgue, and at 2 a.m. on the morning of January 16, 1947, 
Enlarged photographs are flashed by wire photo to the FBI in Washington. Emergency. Request immediate search. And within five hours, a reply comes in from the FBI. Positive identification of prints made from those recorded this office, September 1943. Subject, Elizabeth Short. Age, that date, 19 years. Clerk at Camp Cook, Lompoc, California. Post exchange. Arrested, Santa Barbara, California, for drinking with soldiers in a local cafe. Description follows. Height, 5 foot 6. Weight, 122 pounds. Hair, dark brown. Eyes, green. Medium build. Five moles on back of neck under hairline. With the positive identification of the victim as Elizabeth Short, the police investigation swings into high gear. Friends and acquaintances are quickly located and questioned. Her mother, Mrs. Phoebe May Short of Medford, Massachusetts, is notified and within hours arrives at the Los Angeles airport. Swiftly, the pattern of Elizabeth Short's whole past is formed and her personality comes to life. Elizabeth wrote to me every week since she last left Medford. That was in February of 1945. I received her last letter from San Diego about 10 days ago. Elizabeth wanted to get into pictures. That was her principal ambition. But she told me she was working in a naval hospital, then in San Diego. I just oh, can't sure. believe it. Sure, I knew Beth Short. She was a swell kid. I'll say she had men friends, plenty of them. <laughs> Wish I could have just a few of what she had. Oh, sure. She lived here in Hollywood, but she'd visit around Santa Barbara, Long Beach, San Diego. Gee, she was a pretty kid. With that dark hair and that pretty white skin. And when she got all dolled up in sheer black clothes, that's how she got a nickname, you know. That's why everybody called her the Black Daily. The police now turned to San Diego in an attempt to determine the events that led to the killing of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. At her last known address in San Diego, information is obtained that promises to lead to a major break in the case. Best short lived to me here for a while, but I haven't seen her for a week or so. I understood she's going back to Hollywood. Some man was going to drive her back. His name? No, no, I don't think I ever heard it. She called him Red. I think he used to be a Marine Corps flyer. Let's see. I think it was the night of... Yes, I'm sure it was. The night of January 8th that she left to drive back with him. Now the police have something more definite to go on. Facts with which they can deal in the murder of the Black Dahlia. She was known to have left San Diego seven days before her body was found on Norton Avenue. She was known to have been in the company of an ex-Marine flyer known as Red. All efforts are bent to identify this man so that he might be apprehended and questioned. For three days, the search for this unknown man continues unabated. Then, on January 20th, 1947, at police headquarters in downtown Los Angeles... Say, I, I understand you want to talk to me. I, I'm the man who left San Diego with Elizabeth Short. I, I first met her maybe a week or ten days before Christmas. I was down there on a business trip. I, I saw her standing alone in the street corner and... Well, you know how it is. How uh, how well did you get to know her? Well, we we had dinner together a few times. That was about all. How about this uh, trip to Los Angeles? 
She heard that I was going there, and she asked if she could go with me. So I said, sure. Well, that was on the night of January 8th. That was on the night we left, yes. January 8th. And uh, when did you reach Los Angeles? It was about uh, 6 o'clock the next night. January 9th? Yes, sir. Well, it doesn't take that long to drive here from San Diego. No, we, we stayed at a motel the night before. Nothing wrong with it, you understand. There were different rooms. The reason was we didn't leave San Diego until late, and I wasn't in any hurry to get back here. Oh, I see. Uh, what happened uh, when you got into L.A.? Well, as I said, we drove into L.A. about 6 o'clock that night. The downtown sec- section, that is. Then, while we were driving along, we jolted it before 6 in the evening. January 9th, 1947. A car is approaching the corner of 6th and Los Angeles streets in downtown Los Angeles. Within the car are Elizabeth Short and the man with whom she'd driven up from San Diego. <laughs> oh, it's been a swell trip, Red. I sure appreciate the lift. Forget it. It was a break for me having company on the way up. And as long as you had to come up anyway... Uh... Yeah, I'm going to meet my sister. She should be... Say, isn't that the Greyhound bus station up ahead? Yeah, that's right. Stop there a minute, will you? I want to check my bag. It'll only take a minute. Why, sure, I'd be glad to. Elizabeth Short takes her bags into the station and checks them. All of her clothes, except those she is wearing, are in those bags. Then she gets back into the car. And they drive off. Several minutes later, the car pulls up in front of the Biltmore Hotel at 5th and Olive Street. Here's the Biltmore, Beth. That's where you want to go, isn't it? Yeah, my sister should be in there now. Thanks again for everything. It was really swell. Coming back to town again soon? I expect to, one of these days. Be sure to give me a ring when you do. Try the hotel on Orange Drive. If I'm not there, they'll probably know where I am. Well, so long. Goodbye, Beth. As the car drives away, Elizabeth Short stands there a moment alone, looking after it. Then she turns and walks into the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel. It is not until six days later, the morning of Wednesday, January 15, 1947, that she is heard from again. When a nude, mutilated body is discovered in a vacant lot. The body that was once Elizabeth Short. That was once the gay and laughing Black Dahlia. In just a moment, we'll continue with homicide file number... DR-295771 of the Los Angeles Police Department and the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. But first, here's Ben Cameron for ABC. All of us hope that world peace may be achieved upon the foundation of UN principles. Because of the present period of tension and crisis, however, intensified military preparation is essential. As a result, too, of recent international developments, the scope of service with the armed forces has increased. Today, our armed forces constitute the world's greatest power for peace. And if you are a young man, you can be a part of that great power. You can contribute toward maintaining a free America and building a free world. Furthermore, since today's armed forces are highly trained, you can learn advanced techniques in at least one of the many specialized fields. To perform these highly trained duties, 
You must have brains and ability, and must be capable of leadership and of assuming responsibility. If you are a young man, go to your nearest recruiting office. Learn the opportunities that are open to you and the extra advantages for volunteers. Volunteer today and be the leader of tomorrow. You're listening to Radio Rarities. We'll return after this short break. If you enjoy classic radio shows like The Lone Ranger, The Shadow, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and Suspense, become a member of the Classic Radio Club. Each month, you'll receive 10 half-hour classic radio shows, along with historical liner notes. The 10 shows will be on five CDs or via digital download, whichever you prefer. You'll also receive an email every week with a digital link to the full five-hour Hollywood 360 radio show and the 30-minute Radio Rarities podcast that Lisa Wolf and I co-host. In total, you'll receive 34 classic radio shows per month. Become a Classic Radio Club member at ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535 to speak to a live operator. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535. That's 815-900-7535. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-494-8310. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-494-8310. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-494-8310. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, back to Radio Rarities. And now, back to the ABC Radio Workshop production of the true case history of an actual murder from the files of the Los Angeles Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. The police check and recheck the story of the man who drove the Black Dahlia from San Diego to Los Angeles and dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel at approximately 6 o'clock on the evening of January 9, 1947. Then this statement is issued. We release this man with a clean bill of health. There is no evidence to connect him with the murder of Elizabeth Short. The search for information or some clue to 100 plainclothesmen carrying photographs of the dead girl make the rounds of Los Angeles and Hollywood bars. A methodical check of every known sex offender and irrational criminal is put into operation. Forty uniformed patrolmen make a door-to-door canvas of the entire neighborhood surrounding the lot where the body was found. In every instance, the results are negative. 
Then, on the morning of January 24, 1947, Robert Hyman, manager of a cafe at 1136 South Crenshaw Boulevard, tells the police... It was early this morning. There was a trash can in front of the cafe, and I spotted a pair of shoes and a purse on top of the stuff there. The purse was large, made of some black plastic stuff, and the shoes looked like black suede. They were stuffed in the purse with the heels sticking out. Very high heels, you know. I didn't think anything of it at the time. And then it hit me. Maybe they were a clue to the Black Dahlia killing. They found her only some 20 blocks away. So I went back outside. A city trash collector had already picked up all the stuff. The police immediately make a widespread search for the trash collector's truck and finally locate it at the Los Angeles Byproducts Company. They talked to Mr. K.B. Schroeder, traffic manager of the disposal plant. Yes, that truck came in here all right, but it's already dumped its load. Where was it dumped? Why, into the big pile of refuse over there. Trucks have been dumping stuff in it all week. We'll still have to go through it and find that purse and the shoes. What? Okay, sure thing. I'll stop the work and get all the men busy on it. We'll run the whole pile through a conveyor belt. May take a few hours, but the stuff will turn up if it's in there. For several hours, the conveyor belt carries the refuse from the giant dump pile past the waiting men. Then, finally... There they are! Stop the belt! I see them. There they are. The purse and shoes are recovered from the trash and examined minutely. They answer the description of the purse and shoes worn by Elizabeth Short the night she walked alone into the Biltmore Hotel and disappeared. There are new heel tips on the shoes, and after a detailed, thorough search... The police finally locate the cobbler who had repaired them. Sure, sure. I put on those heels maybe three or four weeks ago. Oh, I remember the girl that brought them in all right. She's not in one of those pictures. She's not the black dad. On the following day, January 25th, 1947, the first real break in the case occurs. A phone call comes in to Homicide Division. Homicide, Hanson. This is the United States Post Office calling, Postal Inspector's Division. Yes? We have something down here that I think will interest you in connection with the Black Dahlia case. Oh, what is it? Well, it's an envelope, and according to the address on it, it contains some personal belongings of the Black Dahlia. Are you interested? We'll be right over. The envelope is examined in the postal inspector's office. It is addressed in type clipped from newspaper accounts of the crime. The crude address reads, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. The envelope is opened. Here is Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen's statement as to its contents. The envelope contained a black address book, a birth certificate, some pictures, and calling cards. There were some news clippings regarding the death of a major, Matt Gordon, a man Elizabeth Short once claimed she had married. An odor of gasoline permeated the envelope and its contents. We are completely satisfied that the contents of that envelope are actually the belongings of the Black Dahlia. Within less than an hour, the envelope and the articles in it are examined by the police department's fingerprint experts. The result... Some exceptionally clear and satisfactory prints... It is the black address book, however, that is of primary importance to the police. 
Though 125 pages have been torn out of it, it still contains the names of some 75 men. Contact with these men has immediately begun. Here are some of the typical results. Well, I, I will admit I did pick her up, but that was last October. I just took her to a drive-in. Never saw her again. Well, I don't know anything about this. Oh, sure, sure, I knew her. That is, I took her out twice. She phoned me a couple of times afterwards and asked for money. But I didn't see her again. I don't know anything about this. Yeah, that's right. I went out with her a number of times. Sure did. But you know how those things are. Haven't seen her for maybe six months now. You know how these things are. Two days after the receipt of the envelope and the little black book, another piece of mail comes into police headquarters. On the outside, in addition to the address, is this puzzling inscription. Sorry, Greenwich Village, not Cotton Club. Homicide officers then open the envelope and examine the contents. Here, Captain, an ordinary penny postcard. Yeah, there's something written on it. Let's see. Wait a minute, listen to this. Here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. And it's signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. The card is written in ink with a bold, crude hand. There are no fingerprints on it. Postal authorities say the new message was mailed the night before in downtown Los Angeles. Captain Jack Donahoe immediately publishes an answer to it. To the killer of Elizabeth Short, if you want to surrender as indicated by the postcard now in our hands, I will meet you at any public location at any time or at the homicide detail office in the city hall. Communicate immediately by telephone or by mail. On January 29th, the police receive another message. It is contained in an envelope addressed in typewriting to Captain Donahoe. It states, I have charged, changed my mind about surrendering. I'm afraid I won't get a fair deal. At 1 p.m., with no further word received from the message sender, another answer is drafted and signed by Captain Donahoe, Deputy Chief W.J. Bradley and Deputy Chief Thad Brown. It states in part, To the slayer of Elizabeth Short, assuming that these messages are authentic and have been sent by the killer, such persons should know that it is not within the power of any police officer or any police department to make terms, and the sentence upon conviction for such acts lies within the, dis the discretion of the courts. However, all police officers are well aware that there are two sides to every question, and we can only promise that you will receive fair treatment and... Uh... In other words, another strange phenomenon occurred. On February 6, 1947, at Fort Dix, New Jersey, a corporal approaches the desk of his commanding officer and stands at attention. Well, corporal, what is it? Uh, I have a confession to make, sir. Confession? Yes, sir. Well, what is it? You've read something about the, the Black Dahlia murder case, the one that took place a month ago in Los Angeles? Mm, yes, I, I believe I've read something about it. Why? Well, sir, I was on leave in Los Angeles at the time. I went out with the Black Dahlia while I was there. 
I was with her on January 9th. I, I blacked out while I was with her that night. I Blacked I, out? What are you trying to tell me, Corporal? Well, sir, I, I'm afraid I'm the killer of the Black Dahlia. On February 8th, two days later, the Corporal signs a 50-page statement, a confession to the murder of Elizabeth Short. In addition, he produces a pair of trousers on which bloodstains are found. The Homicide Bureau makes a very careful study of all the facts and claims made. The result? The corporal's statement is confused and wandering. No details of the murder are included. The facts that have been given have been very carefully checked and a conclusion reached. It is our opinion that the corporal is not a suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short. The Central Homicide Division files on the murder of Elizabeth Short continue to grow. Other confessions are received and found false until a total of 23 persons have claimed to be the killer of the Black Dahlia, a total believed to be unprecedented in American police annals. New clues are examined, new suspects questioned. The investigation continues. Today, nearly four years after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Short, the sentiment of the Homicide Division of the Los Angeles Police Department is still expressed in this way. It is our intention to keep the files open in the death of Elizabeth Short until we have obtained the arrest and conviction of her killer. We consider the investigation to be still very much alive, although at this time the identity of the murder still remains unknown. Unknown? No. The killer of Elizabeth Short is not unknown. Somewhere in whatever town or city this person is hiding, some one of you have seen him today, has spoken to him eaten lunch and dinner with him, knows the location of the spot where he beat and tortured her nearly four years ago. No, the cold-blooded killer who took the life of the Black Dahlia is not unknown. The Black Dahlia Murder Kids. The Black Dahlia Murder Kids. An ABC Radio Workshop production was dramatized by Sidney Marshall from the files of the Los Angeles Police Department. John Ayers was our narrator, and the cast included David Langston, Joe Fleming, Irving Bennett, George Beckwar, Miles Dixon, Glenn Hooper, Harry Brookshire, Jack Finch, Alec McCombie, Anne Ray Stoja, Julie Danton, Daryl Lynn, Marjorie Davies, Diana Henley, Gina Gaines, and... Jane Kerr. Music was composed and played by Harry Gillingham. Sound effects were by Stephen Gregory, and Dick Wilson was our ABC engineer. The producer-director of the ABC Radio Workshop is Stephen E. Markham. Adventure, comedy, romance, drama, mystery. These are yours each week from Studio Y on Hollywood's Vine Street. We cordially invite you to join us again next week for another dramatic production from the ABC Radio Workshop. The Atom Age is with us. But it is also true that the American family goes on and on through crisis after crisis. And we offer Ozzie and Harriet as a typical American family and good reasons for survival. After 15 or so years on the air, the Nelson family is practically an American institution. A very entertaining one. Their zest for living is really contagious. 
and we invite you to catch the habit of relaxing and laughing with the Nelsons. Begin tonight on ABC, of course. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Well, Carl, it seems I had heard that particular script before. That's right, Lisa, and perhaps many of our podcast listeners have as well. The exact same script, except for the opening and closing, was presented on Radio Rarity's podcast number 12 from Somebody Knows. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Somebody Knows aired on CBS during the summer of 1950 while Suspense was taking a vacation. The Black Dahlia script was the finale of the Somebody Knows eight-episode season broadcast on August 24th. And a month later, it ended up over at NBC. I wonder how that happened, Lisa. Perhaps. Perhaps Jack Johnstone, producer and director of Somebody Knows, provided it to Steve Markham, who was at the helm of this ABC audition. Or the scriptwriter Sidney Marshall slipped him a copy. We'll never know. For this audition, Steve Markham selected cast from a vast array of local Los Angeles area theater groups. Although we can't give details on all 17 who participated, here are a few highlights. David Langston and Glenn Hooper were culled from the Geller Theater, which was on Will Boulevard in Hollywood. Where they had previously performed on stage in such plays as the Hart Kaufman comedy The Man Who Came to Dinner and the Martin Flavin thriller The Criminal Code. Harry Brookshire was a director from the Highland Playhouse of Dramatic and Allied Arts. And Julie Danton had graduated the previous spring from Loyola University, where she had major supporting roles in Antigone and Everybody Goes to College. Members of the production crew of the Black Dahlia murder case included sound man Steve Stephen Gregory from the Triton Theater Group in Santa Monica, and Dick Wilson, who was on the engineering staff at ABC. He'd been in the control booth for Mr. President and the Luella Parsons Show. The organist for the ABC audition was Harry Gillingham, a professional jazz pianist. The overall performance by the large cast was not up to network standards as the timing and some cues were missed. There was also the laughter by the announcer during the plug for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. The ABC brass must not not have been happy with the audition, Carl, as the ABC radio workshop was not added to the network schedule. But in 1952, Steve Markham was given another chance, and with a mix of professional and amateur actors, he successfully produced a workshop series called Think. It included two classics. The first was Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury, and the other, The Word by Arch Obler. Well, That's all the time we have for this edition of Radio Rarities. Radio Rarities is a Gulfstream Studios copyrighted production produced by yours truly, Carl Amari. My co-host is Lisa Wolf. Mike Costella is our executive producer, and the show is written by Carl Shadow. Next week, we'll present the Donna Dunham case, the audition of Candy Matson X-Brook 29994 from 1949. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. 
So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.